0: I think most of you know where we are headed this morning. Today, we're going to be focusing our attention on one of the best-known characters in all of the Bible, the Apostle Thomas, who we often refer to as Doubting Thomas, which means the subject of doubt in the Bible and doubt in our lives is on the table this morning as we get close to finishing our series in John. Now, before we dive into the biblical text, let me just lay out a few important principles, some ideas for you guys to meditate upon. First of all, The word doubt in English can be a bit tricky. The word doubt can be a bit tricky, primarily because it has a range of meaning, and when people use it, they may intend it in a way that's not necessarily received by the person who hears it. So let me give you some examples of this. First of all, doubt can simply mean to be uncertain about something or to view something as worthy of questioning. And in that case, we all experience doubt, don't we? And I think we'd agree that it's a healthy thing to ask good questions and to inquire more deeply about things that we are uncertain of. That's healthy. But there's also a darker side to doubt, and that's when we use that word in terms of distrusting something or regarding something with suspicion. And in that sense, doubt can drive a person down a very cynical path towards devastation and loss. And so this is probably a good time to make this important statement. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And that distinction is important. For Christians, this is where we all have what we call a spiritual dashboard, and sometimes the lights start flashing, warning, warning, danger. This is where our spiritual dashboard should start flashing. Having doubts about your faith has to be handled with great care, lest we end up in unbelief and suffer the consequences of that unbelief. So let's make sure we understand this. Healthy doubt means asking clarifying questions about what you already believe. Healthy doubt is asking clarifying questions about what you already believe. Why? So that you can become as certain as possible on this earth about spiritual things so that we can understand them more deeply. And the Lord doesn't condemn us for our questions, right? He's gracious towards us because he knows that we are weak and that we need reassurance at certain times in our lives. And for our part, we ought to make it a goal to work through our questions and to work through our doubts as much as possible, again, on our, in our days on the earth, so that we grow stronger in our faith over lifetimes. When you look back at the trajectory of your faith, you should see less and less doubts over time. It's something that you should be growing in. It's interesting to note that you'll find quite a few biblical characters who struggled with doubt. If that helps you in any way, Abraham and Sarah did struggle with doubt, didn't they? But more, Job and Moses and Gideon and Habakkuk and Zechariah, even John the Baptist while he was in prison, struggled with doubt. So if you are one of those people that says, man, I, I struggle with this, you're in pretty good company. Let's just make sure it's healthy doubt and not unhealthy doubt because unbelief is a step beyond doubting. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe what God has made clear. Unbelief is a determined refusal to believe what God has made clear. When we choose to disbelieve things that God has revealed about himself, about our world, about our own sinful nature. Ultimately, unbelief is a spiritual stubbornness and a spiritual blindness that puts a person outside of saving faith. Unbelief puts a person outside the kingdom of God. And as I said, if if doubt isn't handled carefully, and I've seen this far too many times in my years in ministry, and it's always heartbreaking, when doubts are not handled carefully, it can lead to deconstruction. It can lead to unbelief. And that condition is believe it or not, described in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6. Some of you know this passage. It's, one of the, it's probably the most serious warning passage in the entire New Testament. Hebrews 6 speaks of those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and then fell away. That's what that passage is designed to do, is to shake us up a bit and to warn us. Some of you are familiar with the name Charles Templeton. I know I've talked about him before here from the pulpit. Back in the 1950s, he was an evangelist. He worked with Billy Graham. This was a man who packed out stadiums. Tens of thousands of people came to hear him preach. He was a very influential figure in the Toronto area in terms of being a pastor and a leader in the Youth for Christ movement. By all standards, this was a man that was a spiritual rock. But deep down, he was struggling with doubt, and he didn't share with anybody. He kept it to himself, and around the age of 45, he began to waver in his beliefs. Abruptly, he resigned his pastoral ministry. He said he was going to go study at Princeton Theological Seminary. And in that day, and under the skepticism of that day, his already tenuous faith completely unraveled. He turned against the authority of the Bible. He rejected the Genesis creation account. And instead embraced Darwinian evolution. He rejected any notion of judgment in hell. And soon, predictably, he abandoned Christianity altogether. And he threw himself into media. And he threw himself into liberal politics. And not surprisingly, he divorced his wife. And then he remarried and divorced a second wife. And finally, in 1996, he wrote down his story in a book titled, Tragically, Farewell to God where he explained his reasons for walking away. And scholars were, were, were shocked to see that from an apologetic standpoint, his book was nothing new, nothing particularly impressive. It was just regurgitated objections that had been asked and answered for centuries. It was, in the end, a book written by one apostate to other apostates, designed to commiserate with them and to help, help them justify the fact that they had come to a place of unbelief. And by the way, we see this a lot in our world today. You have folks who are deconstructing and then the first thing they do is they run to social media or they run to write a book. Why? So that they can commiserate with others who feel the same way. To make them feel more justified in the fact that they've walked away from their faith. And if they can drag some to hell with them, they certainly will. What's interesting about Charles Templeton's story is that Lee Strobel had a chance to interview him right before he passed away. And they sat down, and they talked about his book, and Lee Strobel asked him some questions about about the reasons for walking away, and when the subject came up about Jesus, Strobel said that Templeton's body language completely changed. Here's what he said. Jesus was the greatest human being who has ever lived, a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. Strobel said to him, sounds like you really cared about him. And Templeton responded, I adored him. Everything I've ever learned that is good, I learned from Jesus. And then he paused and tears started to well up in his eyes. And he said, I miss him. And with that, he turned away and broke down crying. And he waved off Strobel like that's the end of that line of questioning. I don't want to talk about it anymore And Charles Templeton passed from this life on June 7th, 2001, at the age of 85, and he faced judgment before the Son of God, the the person who he admired so much as a man but refused to believe as the Son of God. So when I step back and I look at the types of doubts that are out there, there's three general categories. Let me share them with you. First of all, there are intellectual doubts. These are questions that challenge our limited, finite minds. And let's admit they are limited and finite. They challenge us because we try to process and believe and to try to get to this place of certainty where we feel okay about these things. So we're talking about things like the the big miracles in the Bible or the fact that Jesus is born of a virgin or the fact that Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human. These are difficult things, intellectual doubts. Secondly, there are spiritual doubts, and these are personal. These are the types of things that rummage around in our souls. These are things like, how can I be sure that I'm saved? Or why do I keep sinning if I love Jesus? Personal questions. And then third, there are circumstantial doubts. And these, these are probably the hardest category of all because this is the, the category that involves all the whys of life. Why do things happen? Why do nice people suffer Why doesn't God intervene to stop a child from being abused? Why why did I get cancer? All of those why questions. There's so much hardship and tragedy in our world, and these type of doubts, they sit at the intersection between biblical faith and the pain of living in a fallen world. And then there's this truth that adds to the challenge of our doubts. We should acknowledge this morning that there are many things in this life that we don't know and we won't know as long as we live on this earth. In other words, there are mysteries that God reserves for himself. Mysteries. And if we can't acknowledge that and humbly accept it, we're always going to be plagued by doubts. We're always going to find ourselves living in a state of spiritual agitation if we just shake our fist at God and say, I need to know everything. Even Paul, a man who was uniquely chosen by God, who was given personal, inexpressible visions, Even Paul knew he was limited. He's the one who wrote, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, meaning when we're in the presence of Christ, we'll see what? Face to face. Now he said, I know in part, but then I will know fully. Even Paul knew that he couldn't know everything while he lived on the earth. And by the way, this is one of the most exciting aspects of knowing Christ, right? That one day we're not going to need faith because it'll all be made sight Isn't that exciting? We're going to know all the secrets of heaven in full. Not dimly, but in full. But for now, we walk by faith. Amen? Okay, grab your Bibles. Long introduction again. Let's go to John chapter 20. We'll come back to some of that stuff at the end, I I promise you. Heavy subject, right? Are we okay with it? Yes. Good. All right, last Sunday we looked at verses 19 to 23 as we looked at Jesus appearing to his disciples as a group for the first time post-resurrection. And everybody was there but who? Thomas, as we're going to find out today. We also looked at the, the story of Jesus meeting the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, which led us into that locked room, that night that Jesus appeared. And the big idea of last Sunday's passage was the commissioning that Jesus left his guys the commissioning. Remember? As the Father has sent me, he said, I also send you. That was the big idea. And so we talked about how that core purpose in our lives remains today. That's, that is the core purpose of why you and I are still on the earth, to fulfill that commission. Having chosen us out of the world, God says, all right, now I'm sending you back into the world. And I want you to go by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to preach exactly as Jesus preached. preached the same message that Jesus spoke while in the flesh. And it was very simple and straightforward. Trust in him alone and your sins are forgiven. Reject him and you'll die in your sins and perish for all eternity. That was the core message, right? That's what we looked at last week. Let's look at our text now for this morning. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so, John reintroduces us to this man named Thomas. So let's review what we know about him up to this point. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us absolutely no data to work with. Did you know that? They just list him as one of the 12 disciples. It's John who gives us a little bit of backstory and then gives us this amazing story here in this chapter. How many of you guys remember the last time we talked about Thomas? I know it's been a while, probably a a solid year. Way back in chapter 11, remember Jesus told the disciples, hey guys, we are going to Bethany. Why? Because my friend Lazarus has died. And all the apostles objected, right? They said, no, 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 it's too dangerous to go anywhere near Jerusalem right now. But when Jesus said, nope, we're going, who spoke up? Thomas. Thomas spoke up, and I'll paraphrase him. He said, let's go, guys. If the master is going to die, let's die with him. Right? And we sort of looked at that and went, ah, okay, all right. How much did he believe that? At least he said it. If we're going to die, let's just die with Jesus, right? Okay. Turns out that it was mostly bluster. In that moment, Thomas seemed really devoted and really committed to laying down his life for Jesus. But then what happened on the fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane? When the actual soldiers were there in front of them, when the actual arrest of Jesus took place, what did Thomas do? He ran away like the rest. He fled into the night. Again, we don't blame him for that. It would have been a scary moment. But when you look at those two contrasting snippets in his life, it causes scholars to debate his mental and emotional state. And this has gone on for centuries as as it's so interesting to, to look at these important people in the Bible and say, what was going through their minds? Now, obviously, we can't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us for sure. But here's some of the questions that are often asked about Thomas. Among the 12, was he particularly bothered by the fear and the weakness he showed there in the garden? Did his failure in that crucial moment plunge him into despair? Some people and I think I'm wired this way, are strongly wired towards loyalty and devotion to a cause. And that, I think that's a wonderful trait to have. But when those same people fall short of their own standards and they have to own their failure, what happens? It causes them great distress. They've let themselves down in the moment of truth. So is that why Thomas wasn't with his fellow disciples eight days earlier in that room? People process through sorrow and tragedy and failure in different ways. Some of you guys are like, I need to be with people. I need to talk it through and process it. Others do the opposite, right? They pull away and they isolate because they want to deal with their pain alone. So the question is often asked, in his despair, did Thomas choose to isolate himself? Is that why he wasn't there that night? He just didn't want to be around people, didn't want to face the other guys and have to say, yep, I'm I'm just like you, a bit of a coward. I ran away too. Look, again, we can't know for sure, but these are the types of things that are interesting to consider. Now, at some point after that first appearance, in the next eight days, some of the other disciples reached out to Thomas and said, hey, dude, you missed it. (laughs) He's alive, right? Verse 25, the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, here it is, I will not believe. That is a strong statement, isn't it? See, Thomas isn't just asking questions here, he is refusing to believe unless God performs for him. This is a crisis of faith, this is a problem. And and we are most prone to these types of things happening in the midst of suffering or after a shocking experience. When you start to think that God isn't working as you think he should, or God isn't coming and bringing me the peace the way I want him to do it. This is when we're vulnerable. And if you're not on guard and not aware of what's going on in your heart, this is a moment where you can sink into a sea of doubts and find yourself making extreme statements like this, I will not believe. Spiritual dashboard, warning, warning, right? And I think it's fair to speculate that Thomas's emotion here is due somewhat to his sincere love for Jesus. I think his heart was crushed by the fact that his master was taken away and suffered and died. So when he hears his friend say, we've seen the, the Lord, I think Thomas is like, I'm not gonna allow myself to believe it. I am not gonna allow myself to get my hopes up again. I've been dashed all of my hope is gone, and now you tell me this, I won't believe. I just won't. So it's almost like a protective measure over his heart to guard himself from being devastated again if it turns out not to be true. Well, maybe they saw a ghost. Maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe they're lying to me. I'm not going to get my hopes up again. So I think there's room for grace here for Thomas, for cutting him some slack in this moment. But We cannot ignore the danger that he's in here because this is a problem. He is feeling, listen now, he is feeling, he is emoting, but in rejecting the eyewitness testimony of his friends, he is not thinking well. Spiritual dashboard. I'm feeling, I'm emoting, but I'm not thinking straight right now, and I'm definitely not seeing with eyes of faith. Well, Let's see what happens. Verse 26. Verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it in my side. Wow. Eight days go by. Notice the disciples are still huddled together in a locked room. They're still fearful, right? The only difference in this, this part of the story versus last week is that Thomas is present. And by the way, good on him, right? Good on him for being with people, for, for joining with his brothers who can carry, if he's got this burden of, of guilt and failure, they can carry that with him. And this is a, such a good lesson for all of us. When we are struggling with our faith, the worst thing you can do is to isolate. It's the worst thing you can do or run to the world for comfort. Those are the two dangers. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm doubting things. I'm going to isolate or run to the world for comfort. That's the time when you're struggling to double down on your commitment to be in fellowship, to be with people who love you, to be with people who will care for you. Amen? Please know that. So verse 26, Jesus again miraculously and suddenly appears in their midst. And we talked last week about how he's able to pass through walls, right? And he repeats the very same simple greeting, peace be with you. And then according to the text here, it appears he immediately goes to Thomas. Immediately, right? Why? Because he knows all that Thomas has been wrestling with. And consider how gracious he is in this moment, right? Could he have come to Thomas and rebuked him? Yeah, why weren't you here last week? Why were you doubting? Why were you isolating? He could have rebuked him. Right? God, God, Jesus is in no way obligated to come and, and meet Thomas' demands for evidence, but he is so long-suffering, right? For, for people like us, not just Thomas, but for us, so long-suffering as we continue to fall short, right? He comes to us and brings us comfort when he could just rebuke us. So, he repeats each of Thomas's objections back to him. I love this. And then he offers him an opportunity to believe. I love this. Remember, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, okay, Thomas, see my hands. Unless I put my finger into the place of the nails, okay, Thomas, reach here with your finger. Unless I put my hand into a side, okay, Thomas, reach your hand and put it into my side. My guess is, Thomas is absolutely stunned by this. He's, he's, he's speaking my own words back to me. He's stunned so much so, have you noticed in the text, it doesn't actually say he touched the Lord. He never, it never says he actually did any of those things. He doesn't need to. Just seeing Jesus alive and hearing his voice and hearing his own objections being repeated back to him is more than enough. And he must have recognized in that moment, and I'm sure you can imagine how many things his mind is processing. Not only is Jesus alive, but he's totally omniscient. He's aware of all of my thoughts and my words, which means what? Of course, he's divine. It means that he is God. And that's going to come into play, isn't it? This leads to the most important exchange in this entire passage at the end of verse 27 and then verse 28. Jesus Has been gracious to Thomas. But listen, there comes a point when questions and doubts have to be laid aside and replaced with belief. There comes a point in our lives where questions and doubts have to be laid aside and we come to a place of belief. Guys, let me just say this because I hear this a lot in Christian circles. It is not good, it is not healthy to just sit forever in the weeds of doubt and despair. It's not good. I, I've heard people talk about this. I'll oh, just sit in the weeds. No. I'm not saying we don't go through hard things. I'm not saying we don't go through heavy meditation at times, but we don't camp there in a place of doubt and despair. Because listen, you're never going to have 100% certainty on everything. So if you sit in those weeds forever... You're going to be at risk. At some point, you've got to get up and walk by faith. And this is what Jesus now commands Thomas to do, right? You've seen my wounds. I've given the opportunity to touch them. But now he says, look at the end of verse 27, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. He commands him, stop disbelieving, Thomas, and start believing. It's a choice we make, isn't it? choice we make and jesus calls thomas to it here's the thing you guys we could all get together after church and we could sit around for hours and hours and do nothing but raise questions and objections about this verse or about that passage we can get together and say let's speculate about all the what ifs that we see in the bible or let's try to figure out how everything in the bible works We could spend a lifetime hyper-focusing on concepts that are infinite and mysterious. And guess what would happen? We would all end up struggling and be worse for the wear. It would drive us to a dark place. So at the end of the day, you and I have to make a choice. We have to choose to trust the evidence that God has given to us, to to trust the eyewitness accounts that we have, to trust what God has revealed about himself in his word, to trust that everything he says about us is true, to trust external evidence and internal evidence, and at the end of the day, choose to believe. Choose to believe. And in verse 28, Thomas does. He responds so beautifully to Jesus' command. Look what it says. Thomas answered him and said to him, my Lord and my God. What a moment. To be a fly on the wall in that moment, right? So if we really want to get Thomas right, maybe we need to stop calling him the doubter, start calling him the declarer. Because in terms of Christological declarations, this is about as high and glorious as it comes in the entire New Testament. But try to imagine the roller coaster of emotions that Thomas has been on. Think about this for a second. First, fleeing your master in the dead of night, watching him get dragged away, scourged and crucified, wanting in your heart to die with him, but I'm unable to really face that level of horror. Beating yourself up then, maybe I'm disloyal, I'm a coward, isolating from my friends in a state of depression, not knowing what to do next. Then being told by your friends, people you've trusted in the past, that he's actually alive. But how can that be? How can that be? It's too good to be true. I won't believe it. I'm not getting my heart broken again. But it's true, Thomas, we actually saw him. No, I won't believe it. I won't believe it. I refuse to hope like that again. Roller coaster of emotions. And with all those emotions running through him, suddenly, bam, he's there. I mean, can you imagine? They're sitting around talking, all of a sudden, boom, he's there. He's alive. And he's standing right in front of you, and he's looking in your eyes, and he's mentioning your name, and he's addressing your doubts, and suddenly you're keenly aware of. Of all your sin and all your doubts and why have I questioned him like this? All of this is happening. And Thomas just explodes in a combination of wonder and repentance and faith. And he says, my Lord and my God. It's a split second transition from unbelief, right? Danger zone to radical belief like that. He uses kurios in the Greek for Lord, but then he uses theos, a title that is granted only to a person who manifests the characteristics and nature of God. Kurios and theos. Thomas's confession parallels what John himself declared in his prologue, remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we get that wrong? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. We beheld the glory of God made flesh. That's what Thomas is declaring here. I've seen his glory, my Lord and my God. I love how Spurgeon in his day, he talked about five aspects of this great declaration. Here's what he said about it. He said, it was a devout expression of holy wonder right? Don't, do you ever just step back and, and just go, I, I live in a place of wonder <laughs> about everything, about this world, about me, about Jesus, about the fact that God chose me, about the fact that I'm saved. It's all a wonder to me. Holy wonder. Secondly, it was an expression of immeasurable delight. I, again, understatement. The joy that he saw, seeing Jesus alive again and, and, and knowing his name and Addressing his doubts, what delight. Number three, it indicates a total and complete change of mind. As I said, radical step from unbelief to belief. Number four, it was an enthusiastic profession of allegiance to Christ. Thomas had a chance to once again declare his loyalty to Jesus, right? Jesus gave him a second chance to say, I am fully devoted to you. And then last, it was a distinct and direct act of adoration and worship and that last point is so important adoration and worship thomas worshiped jesus do we worship men we do not we worship god and if jesus knew himself to be anything less than theos almighty god he would have rebuked thomas's statement and said worship god alone but he accepts the titles of lord and god so this was not blasphemy on Thomas's part. It's the highest of all truths. And for anyone today who wishes to deny that Jesus is God, based on this passage, if you want to be consistent, you would have no choice to, but to condemn Jesus as a blasphemer himself for receiving this type of worship if he's not God. You, admit you would have to condemn Jesus if he were just a man for receiving this worship. The choice here is stark and binary. If Jesus is anything less than God, it would be a horrible sin to worship him. And if he truly is God, it would be a horrible sin not to worship him. So choose wisely. And so we say to Thomas, well done. Maybe we shouldn't call you a doubter anymore. Here's an awesome truth. When a person is resolved to finding the path through those weeds of doubt to get to the path of a stronger faith, that person often becomes one of the strongest believers in the church. When they go down that path and get through it, on the other side, they become some of the strongest believers in the church. Why? Because they fought the battle against doubt righteously. And they've responded to the Spirit's teaching. And once those doubts finally get laid aside and they choose to believe, they find themselves building on a bedrock of unshakable faith. That is a great truth. Now, the flow of these last three verses is so beautiful, but they're all born out of that confession that Thomas just made. And look, it starts with a beatitude in verse 29. Wait, a beatitude? Yeah, it's right here, verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed, Thomas? Here it comes. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's a beatitude. Happy, content, Joyful and filled with peace are those who will never see me in the flesh, yet believe that I am Lord and God. Blessed are you. This is what Peter would write later in his first epistle, right? Peter had the privilege of seeing the risen Christ, but he knew at the time he was writing his epistles that those folks would never see Jesus in the flesh. So this is what he said. He said, though you've not seen him, you love him. Praise God, right? Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You rejoice, you believe, you love, even though you can't see. That's faith. That's a choice. Jesus' blessing here in verse 29, listen now, is for people that have a satisfied faith. A satisfied faith. They're satisfied in what God has revealed. They're satisfied in the sufficiency of Scripture. Satisfied in the clarity of Scripture. Satisfied by the Spirit's presence within teaching and guiding. Satisfied in the work that God is doing in in each of us, in His people, and through His church. Just satisfied. And we're not out there needing more to believe because God has satisfied us with his sufficiency. And listen, questions about God and about the Bible and about ourselves and about the world, they're always going to be with you. They're always going to be with you. I can tell you honestly, I've been walking with Jesus for almost 40 years now. I still have questions. There's still really hard things out there. I, I wrestle every day with the problem of evil in this world, all the suffering, all the tragedy. I struggle with Understanding God as he's revealed himself to us as a, you know, a trinity, as, as, as a man who ha- can have two natures in one person. I, I struggle with it. I struggle with the issue of eternal punishment for sin. I struggle with the sovereignty of God in all things, especially in election. Why, why choose me and not other people? All of these things, right? Those questions will remain until we see face to face. But I can look to God's word for comfort in those areas and I can believe. Absolutely. I can release those doubts and walk by faith. Absolutely. And a lot of this is built on this very subject we're looking at now. That is the bedrock of the resurrection. It means everything. If this is God's word, and if Jesus is truly risen from the dead, as so many people have witnessed, and if he's worshiped as Lord and God, then his claims and his promises are true, and all of my doubts become of second importance. That's part of the choice to say, I'm going to put those things above my little issues and trust him. Now, does that mean I'll stop? I, I could just stop studying now and, and, and just you know, live an empty-headed life where I don't deal with my questions. No, I'm going to keep studying to the day he calls me home so that I can keep growing more and as certain as I can be, I'm going to keep growing. But in the meantime, I will trust him because my faith rests on a sure foundation. Now, I hate to do this here. We're going to skip over verses 30 and 31. This is, Jesus, this is John's purpose statement for the entire book, right? We've talked about it multiple times in this series over three years. Trust me, on our last Sunday in John, we're going to come back to this. And we'll look at exactly how John has fulfilled his purpose in writing this gospel. So patience is a fruit of the Spirit, right? So you can wait. Okay, for today, I just need to wrap up and, and come back to some final thoughts on this subject of doubt. And let me start by repeating what I said earlier. Friends, having doubts about your faith is not a sin. Having doubts is not a sin. But how you handle those doubts means everything. If handled poorly, it can lead to unbelief and apostasy. Done correctly, it can lead to great spiritual growth and maturity. And it's so important to know that. So I'm going to give you a couple of warnings from the spiritual dashboard to see where doubt often comes from. First of all, unbelief can come upon us when we fail to grow up and mature in the faith when we start coasting and we stop growing and we stop maturing and we stop studying yeah unbelief can come upon us those doubts can creep in this is something you read about in hebrews 5 i read earlier that the severe warning passage in hebrews 6 what comes before hebrews 6 hebrews 5 very good you guys are sharp today. But li- you guys probably know this passage, but listen, it says, "Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You've been slacking, you've been apathetic. He, he, he's what he means. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness, because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been what? Trained to distinguish between good and evil. Training takes work. Guys, a weak faith is a vulnerable faith. You have to know that. We cannot afford to be apathetic about deepening our understanding of what we believe. Even the hard stuff. That that phrase there in verse 14 is critical. The training of our senses. Why? So that we can discern the dangers so we can discern what is good, so we can discern good and evil, so we can go to the right things and reject the wrong things. But it requires training. This requires us to be consistent readers and good listeners and solid studiers committed to grow and mature in the faith. Trust me, the day of testing and temptation comes upon all of us. And in that day, that type of commitment to study and grow will serve you well. That's number one. Number two, unbelief can come upon us if we adopt an unrealistic attitude towards knowledge and certainty. An unrealistic attitude towards knowledge and certainty. I know people who have attempted to place a demand upon God to prove something to their satisfaction or else they won't believe. I demand God that you prove to me in the way I want you to prove to me to my satisfaction or else I will reject you. As if the Almighty is somehow obligated to come down and meet each one of our own personal standards of evidence so that we can have 100% certainty. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Friends, if you're in a place where you have to know everything with absolute certainty, your faith is not going to make it. It's not. Because someday you're going to get rocked by something. You're going to get rocked by a question or probably a circumstance, some type of suffering you go through or something, someone in your family, something that you see, and you will crumple. You will crumple. Faith is about walking forward as we trust in the promises of God, knowing that one day our faith is going to be vindicated and we'll see all things as they truly are. But in the meantime we got to let go of what what we can let go and choose to believe and walk in spite of the fact that for now we see dimly. For now we can only know in part. Don't put that expectation on God. Third, unbelief can come upon us if we adopt a preoccupation with our doubts. This is where obsession can lead to our downfall. When we get so wrapped up Improving everything and becoming certain of all things, we get so wrapped up in our minds and our emotions that we lose all sense of proportion. Here's a great quote from Alistair McGrath. You may know him. He says, Doubt is like an attention-seeking child. The more attention you pay to it, the more attention it demands. By worrying about your doubts, you get locked into a vicious cycle of uncertainty. Would this not be an excellent strategy for the enemy? Wouldn't this be an excellent strategy? If I can get you to take your eyes off of what you know is true and to start obsessing over all the little questions that lead you to uncertainty, I can drag you away from faith. Excellent strategy. Gradually, your spiritual life would wither away and doubt would turn to hopelessness and unbelief. And at the end of the day, it's because you allowed yourself to be carried away. So, three warnings on the spiritual dash- dashboard. Pay heed to those things. What should we do then, in a positive sense, if we're wrestling with doubts? Let me give you a few of these things. First of all, ask God about it and then seek help from believers. Friends, God is not fragile, He's not afraid of questions, not afraid of your doubts, your fears, your worries. Like Thomas, He already knows what you're wrestling with. Can we just admit that? He knows exactly what you're wrestling with so why would you not come to him and talk to him why would you not bring it before him and cry out and ask the spirit to attend to your heart ask the spirit to help you overcome your doubts and your fears and to to grow you and strength and steadfastness and sometimes i don't know why we do this as christians we're like i have this problem here well, what are you doing about it nothing we should probably pray i probably should so what are you going to do about it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself too, right? And, and the Bible says sometimes you, you don't have because you haven't asked. So we go to the Lord, right? And, and we lay these things before him. He, again, he can handle it and he knows and say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And then don't fight the battle alone, like Charles Templeton tried to do, to, to keep it all inside, Go to a trusted Christian friend. Reach out to a mentor. Call an elder in the church and say, I need help. I need discipleship in this particular area because I am wrestling. We would love to help with that. That's number one. Number two, recognize, and I said it before, faith is a choice, not a feeling. You're never going to have 100% certainty. So faith is a choice that you'll have to keep making. Keep making all the days of your life until the lord calls you home. What is biblical faith according to Hebrews 11:1? We all know this verse, right? It's the assurance or reality of things hoped for, the conviction or proof of things not seen. Things not seen. So I choose to believe. And I choose to put my confidence in God. And I can tell you after 40 years now, I still have questions, but God has helped me to have an unshakable faith. Why? Because first of all, I think the evidence is clear. I don't think anything else that I've ever seen, read or heard makes more sense about what this world lives in, or about what this world is going through and this world that we live in. But I agree with what Peter says in John 6. I, to me, this is one of the most profound statements, and we read right past it. Remember when, when people were leaving Jesus' ministry, which is amazing? they, they walked away from Jesus? And what did he say? He said to the 12, You don't want to go away too, do you? What did Peter say? Where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. What choice do I have? Have you ever gotten to that point? You're like, I have questions, but hey, where else am I going to go? And so I'm all in on Jesus. I choose to be all in because I have nowhere else to go. That's number two. Number three, act on your faith. None of your doubts. This too is a choice, right? So many biblical characters did this. Noah, are you serious, Lord? Build a boat here? If he'd acted on his doubts, he'd have been sipping iced tea and waiting for the flood. But Noah acted on his faith, right? Abraham, when he left Ur, Abraham, when he... Brought Isaac up to be sacrificed. What, what, if, what if he acted on his doubts and not his faith? Moses, when he, when he walked across the Red Sea, are, are you kidding me with the, with the water? And, have you ever thought about that? How terrifying? Moses acted on faith. David, when he looked at Goliath and said, are you kidding me? Acted on his faith. God says, I can do this. What about Joshua when he marched around Jericho? Seriously? Blowing the horn? (laughs) Right? Daniel in the lion's den. They acted on their faith. Paul, you want me to travel all over the world to Gentile lands where I'm probably going to be killed and preach the gospel? Yeah. Act on your faith, not on your doubts. There's an old saying, and I found it to be true. Feed your doubts and your faith will starve. Feed your faith and your doubts will starve. Right? You're going to feed something, you're going to starve the other. Listen, the great heroes of the faith had doubts, trust me. But at the end of the day, they took a deep breath, they trusted the Lord, and they walked forward. If you do that, if you will keep walking forward, you'll go stronger. You'll go stronger. You'll feed your faith. Number four, doubt your doubts, not your faith. When you're in the weeds or in the valley of darkness, I just said it, keep walking. Walking. Nothing good comes from camping out in the weeds of doubt. Keep moving. Every step forward that you take is doubting your doubts. Keep lifting your eyes. Keep refocusing on Christ. Be with his people, and you will find the Lord encouraging your heart. How many of you guys know the story of the father who brought his demon possessed son to Jesus in Mark 9? One of the most profound stories that I I find in the New Testament. All of his life, his son has been possessed by the Spirit. It does terrible things to him. This father is distraught. He has tried everything. And then he hears that Jesus, the miracle worker, is in Galilee. So he brings his boy and he he finds Jesus and he shouts out. He says, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed with the Spirit. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Do you remember what Jesus said? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, what would you think if you were the dad in that moment? Hold on. It's up to my belief? Is that what he just said? Do I have to believe that much? This father desperately wants to see his son delivered, but could you see the doubts creeping into his mind? Wait, I have to believe that much? Somewhere in the back of, my, back of his mind, he's probably rehearsing all the things that have not worked in the past, and he's like, well, what if this doesn't work? He's battling to believe. In this moment. And then from his heart comes one of the most profound requests. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said what? I do believe. Help my unbelief. What a a brilliant posture to live in. I do believe. But Lord, help me to believe more. I'm going to keep moving. But please, as I do that, strengthen me. Strengthen me to trust you even more. That's what we need to do. Last one, number five. Understand that there are some things you will never fully understand, so keep going back to what you know is true. There's a whole bunch of things you're not gonna fully understand. You're not gonna get certainty, but you can always go back to what you know is true. Paul is such a good example of this. The guy suffers so much, and at the end of his life, he makes so many great statements about about what he's seen. In Romans 8, he says, I'm convinced that nothing in all the universe can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. He's convinced of it, he says. Does Paul know everything? No. Is he 100% certain? No. But he's convinced of that. He's convinced of all things, even in the hardship and the suffering, I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Friend, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? He says to Timothy, the very end of his life, he says, I suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know who my trust is in. He says, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul still has questions, but he is convinced in what he knew was true, and he would come back to it over and over again. I know whom I believed in. That's enough for me. So ask yourself this question, what, conviction, what convictions in your life are you sure are true? What do you know to be true? Whatever that is, focus on those things and seal those truths in your hearts and that will carry you through in the time of doubts. Amen? Amen. So as I close, make sure that you're always working. I don't say this enough. Make sure that you're always working to become a student of your own heart. Don't be like Charles Templeton and be surprised by your sudden doubts and unbelief. The degree to which you're surprised by those things is the degree to which you don't know your own heart. Either you don't know what's going on in the deep or you're not talking about it, you're not processing it, you're not talking to the Lord about it, you're not talking to people about it. Do you know what's happening in your heart? Are are doubts creeping in right now as you sit here this morning? Do you have those doubts creeping in? Intellectual doubts, spiritual doubts, circumstantial doubts. Is there an action step that you need to take? Do you need to talk to somebody about this? If so, will you reach out? We have a firm foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ, a sure foundation in his written word, and he is worthy of your trust, but you may need help with that. Will you promise me that you will reach out to somebody and say, I'm struggling. I'm battling to believe, but I need some help? Will you do that? Let's bow our heads.